0: Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast, brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program.
1: Greetings, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program, sponsored by the Holly Street Church of Christ. My name is Jeff, and with us today is our regular
0: co-host, Brian. Brian, how are you doing? Hey, Jeff, doing well. Looking forward to these questions we're going to be answering today. Uh, Exactly. And, you know, admittedly,
1: probably the most important doctrine related to Christianity is probably most likely the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, such that we might uh, have forgiveness of sins, salvation, etc. Certainly it makes Christianity unique among the major world religions, and there's all different kinds of aspects related to the events, related to the activities, you know, leading up to it, what happened to Jesus, the various phrases that he used on the cross, etc. And not too surprisingly, we do get a good number of questions submitted to the website on these various aspects of the crucifixion. What Brian and I thought we would do today is look back through our archives at some of the previously submitted questions and pull some related to the crucifixion and sort of share those with uh, our audience on the chance that, you know, our listeners may have uh, similar questions or others may have approached them uh, with these kinds of similar questions. And in generally what we do with these sort of question-related podcasts, Brian and I will kind of take turns asking and answering questions And then whether embedded in the question or at the very end of the podcast, we'll provide uh, references to supplemental information that you can read even more about uh, that particular topic uh, at our website at BibleQuestions.org. That's sort of the plan of attack for today. Brian, anything you want to add before we uh, jump into it?
0: Just one thing, and that's, you know, we're certainly open to accepting your questions if what we cover today doesn't answer maybe a question you had. Or as Jeff mentioned, when you go to our website and look at that, you know, the sections we reference, you still like, well, I'm still wondering about whatever, right? Well, we have that ask a question button on the website and uh, certainly welcome you to uh, submit a question if you'd like.
1: Cool. Okay, okay. Well, let's just get into the very first one, which is kind of an accounting question, if I could use that term loosely submitted by Sanchez. And so he wrote in asking, how is it that Jesus was crucified on Friday, was resurrected on Sunday? Bible says that he was three days and three nights in the tomb.
0: Yeah. And you're right, Jeff. I guess I'd never looked at it like that as an accounting question, but you're right. It's really about hours and days and so forth. So one, you know, a couple of facts that the scriptures help us to understand. For instance, we are told, of course, that Jesus died and was placed in the tomb on Friday, as Sanchez mentions. And uh, you know, there are passages like John chapter 19 and verse 31 that explains this or or confirms this, I should say. I'll just read that passage. Therefore, because it was preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So, Sabbath was a Saturday for those of you that may not be familiar. And so, they wanted to make sure, because that was considered a holy day, that those who were on the cross were not living. And so, when they broke their legs or requested that they be allowed to break their legs, it's to hasten death, basically. And, Sabbath was a Saturday, John 19. Uh, john chapter 19 verse 42 we read so there they laid jesus because of the jews preparation day for the tomb was nearby and so you know passages like john 1931 john 1942 confirms that he did die and he was placed in the tomb on friday okay so that's been established we also know that his resurrection was on a sunday and all four Gospels have passages that confirm that. And I'll just give these to our listeners if you'd like to look them up. Feel free. But Matthew chapter twenty-eight, verse one; Mark chapter sixteen, verse two; Luke twenty-four, verse one, and then John chapter twenty, verse one. So all four of those. And you'll, what you'll notice when you look at those passages that they use the term "the first day of the week," which certainly in that time, and we as well understand that that means it was a Sunday. So pretty easy to confirm buried on a friday rose on a sunday okay so then when you think about the fact that you know he was buried in the afternoon on a friday and arose sunday morning i think we would all understand that it would not be possible for him to have been in the tomb for 3 complete days which would be 72 hours so what we should be aware of of course is that the scriptures never state That he would be in the tomb for a specific number of hours. It just says three days. And so if you you talk to somebody, hey, I was in this location on three days. Well, if you were there for part of Friday, all of Saturday, and part of Sunday, you could still say, I was there three days. So I think we all understand that. Over in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 44, it says, Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two and Jesus had cried out with a loud voice and he said father into your hands i commit my spirit and having said this he breathed his last so i also wanted to clarify there can be confusion sometimes when you read about a certain hour the 6th hour for instance you know for us who have 24 hour periods and our days start at midnight, our sixth hour would be 6 a.m. And in fact, the Romans kept time like we do, but the Jews actually divided their days into 12 equal parts or hours. And their day, what they called quote-unquote day, began at sunrise and it ended at sunset. In fact, Jesus himself said over in John chapter 11 and verse 9, are there not 12 hours in the day? Now you might read that and say, wait a minute, we have 24 hours. Well, because he's talking about, you know, as it relates to the Jewish timekeeping, if you will, they looked at sunrise to sunset, which meant that in the summers, those days were longer and in the winter shorter, right? As you have more or less light. And so anyhow, just kind of a note there to understand that their nights began at 6 p.m. So someone says, well, you know, we think of night as overnight. Well, their nights once again began at sunset. So as you just start to kind of divide up the time, Jeff, I guess, it, you know, we don't have to parse too many hours here, do we? We just know that it was three days and three nights, according to the Jewish timekeeping system. And that kind of explains what might be confusing to some.
1: Sure. Well, and I think the other thing we, we sometimes run into is, you know, we modern people tend to be very sensitive to numbers, to time, to accuracy, to etc. And when we see various uh, numbers and accountings and chronologies, etc. in the Bible, is we try to impose our perspective on the record. When in some cases, as you said, there are different timekeeping systems than ours. Also, in some ways, they We're not quite as precise as we are. In fact, uh, this concept of uh, three days, three nights, etc., as you look and compare different parallel passages, I think I have found even some variation between the passages, like on the third day or after three days or in three days or three days and nights. Again, some variation, which I guess kind of suggests that, uh, you know, the the record is not quite as precise as we might expect it to be. So I just thought I would... uh, throw that in there as well. But I do appreciate you sort of putting in the anchor points, so to speak, you know, beginning and end, and then reconciling the scriptures to them. Anything else before we uh, move to the next one?
0: Well, yeah, I'd just say that, yeah, what we should be focusing on, and this isn't a criticism of Sanchez, but is the fact that Jesus died and arose again and overcame death and those kinds of things, right? And how significant that was. Definitely.
1: Yeah. As I think I've heard some people say, we may have a tendency of majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors, meaning we tend to focus on the little details and lose sight of the big picture.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. So it looks like Anne has a question for you, Jeff. Why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And she's referencing a statement that he made on the cross. All right,
1: and and actually, there are, if I remember correctly, seven distinct sayings uh, of Jesus on the cross. Yep, and all of them are very short. Not surprisingly, since you know, given the crucifixion process and the problems with you know being dehydrated and loss of blood and and, and other kinds of you know physical effects, you know, why the why the phrases would be relatively short. And, and this obviously is one of them. And it kind of confuses people. You know, why would the Father, quote-unquote, forsake Jesus. And of course, it's led to some interesting theories that we'll get into for a little bit. But, you know, for starters, let's recognize that this particular saying is recorded in two of the Gospels. Matthew chapter 27, verse 47, and Mark chapter 15, verse 34. Now, generally speaking, I have heard that there are three somewhat common interpretations of this passage. You know, where scholars have looked at it, at other passages and said, well, what he probably meant was X." So one of those is that in a literal sense, God abandoned Jesus, forsook him, turned, walked away, whatever, because Jesus became personally sinful. He became personally guilty of sin. And hence the father had to, you know, abandon, you know, Jesus as a sinner, et cetera. Unfortunately, with that particular interpretation, there are you know, other passages that, first of all, recognize that Jesus was sinless. John chapter 8, verse 29, as an example, Jesus speaking, And he that sent me is with me, and the Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And, of course, as a sacrifice for sin, in parallel with Old Testament uh, animal sacrifices, he would have to be sinless. Without blemish, you know, in order to qualify, so that particular interpretation at the least is kind of shaky. Another passage that sort of weakens this particular theory uh, that Jesus was not truly forsaken or abandoned by God it occurs in John chapter 16 verse 32. Of course, Jesus is. This is recorded on the night of He was betrayed, and uh, basically within 24 hours of Him uttering uh, this particular phrase, uh, "Why have you forsaken me?" Behold, the hour cometh, yea, and now is, that ye, of course, referring to his disciples present at the Last Supper, shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Of course, we have to recognize from a number of other passages as well, that Jesus was basically an innocent, unblemished, sinless sacrifice for our sins. You know we see that uh, especially in like Isaiah uh, chapter fifty-three, you know beginning with roughly verse four and verse five. You know he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. We uh, were like sheep gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Uh, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not that Jesus was necessarily a sinner. Verse eight, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off the land of the living, or the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Uh, verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Uh, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord, prosper in his hand. So the, this concept that Jesus somehow became a sinner, just, you just know, doesn't seem to fit. In fact, for more information on this particular topic, uh, I would refer our Listeners, to back to our website, under you know the Topics menu button under F for Forgiveness and the Imputation of Christ's Righteousness, which is especially related to this topic. So that's the one theory of the three regarding why you forsaken me. The second one, which I think probably has a little bit more credibility, you know, the phrase why you forsaken me was in the sense of the Father was not helping him, you know, not coming to his rescue, so to speak. And I think you might be able to make a case that Jesus, you know, given all the brutal suffering, scourging, et cetera, that he had, you know, physically endure any of the associated, you know, you know, mental anguish accentuated by all of the uh, crucifixion events and effects, et cetera, that perhaps there may be some sense of you know loneliness or showing the Jesus' humanity in the suffering saying, oh, you know, you're not helping me. I don't know. That, that one's a little on the weak side, I'll admit as well. But it certainly could be consistent with his physical and mental suffering, which honestly, I was not aware of until, you know, a, a few years ago. In some ways, I think kind of makes the most sense. And that is, if you know that Jesus is not just talking, he's quoting scripture. In fact, if you do a little bit of research, you'll find out that he's actually quoting the beginning of Psalm 22.1. which starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning, which is interesting. but Even more so if you go on into that same passage, Psalms 22, skip down to verse 6, I am a worm and no man. A reproach of men and despised by the people; all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, "He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him." Verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths, like a raging and roaring lion. Now, notice verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have closed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lot. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far from me, O my strength, hasten, help me. Of the three explanations, honestly, I think this is probably the strongest. Where Jesus is telling the audience, Hey, remember Psalms 22:1, or Psalms 22 and all of these messianic prophecies. Well, guess what? They're occurring right now during my crucifixion, which even further proves I am the Messiah. Very fascinating explanation, which Brian, I think, as I said, in my opinion, really, it's almost like the writer of Psalms was a witness to the crucifixion when you look at the uh, very graphic language. Anyway, oh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Honestly, probably is Jesus pointing the crowd back to Psalms 22 and proclaiming that he's the Messiah, which I thought is a very interesting view.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I agree with that. I always lean towards the third explanation. And I think there's two things here that we can learn. One is that, you know, just when it comes to studying, as we've talked about on many occasions, you know, considering the context local, right, or the wide, wider context, like Jesus's statements and prophecy and all of that. So, you know, when we study, sometimes we have to look just as you did, Jeff, at all the possibilities and say, okay, this one seems the most plausible. And the second one could be plausible as long as it doesn't conflict with other scripture. And maybe the first could be. So, you know, that's the key. Does it conflict with other scripture or not? And to your point, the second thing I agree with the statement you made about Jesus potentially saying that to fulfill prophecy, because he did that in other places. For instance, in Matthew chapter 26, he specifically said when he was talking to the multitudes And when they came after him to arrest him and came after him with swords and clubs and so forth. And he says, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And there were more than one occasion where he said that. So anyhow, it certainly is plausible that it could be that. But appreciate you going through those possibilities.
1: Oh, and in fact, in some ways, I think both uh, Psalm 22 and I think it's, uh, I remember it's like Isaiah. It's either Isaiah 53 or 55, the suffering servant. Know, very, very graphical, explicit, detailed, if you will, almost an account of the crucifixion. What would that be? A thousand years? hmm 800 to a thousand years prior to the crucifixion. Anyway, don't want to belabor the point, but uh, yeah, a, a very interesting uh, perspective. I think, Brian, it's, yeah, your turn if you're ready. All right, yep. Okay, here we go. So Denise writes in. And here's another saying uh, that a person wants some explanation on. Please explain the statement from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do.
0: Yes, another statement where it seems pretty straightforward. However, we might ask, why is he saying that? Why is he asking the Father to forgive these sinful, wicked people that just crucified him? And so this particular statement can be found over in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. And so to get a little bit of context, let's go back to verse 33, if you have your Bibles handy. So Luke chapter 23, beginning of verse 33, it says, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. So, Jeff, the first thing that stands out to me is, you know, here is Jesus. He's been crucified. He is hanging on the cross in excruciating pain being mocked and spat upon and beaten. You know, you read other accounts, yet he makes this statement. And that's a difficult one for me. I think if we look at our own lives, and I don't want to take us too far afield here, but, you know, there are times where we suffer. And probably the last thing on our mind is asking, you know, those who are harming us to be forgiven. But anyways, that just shows you how much love that Jesus had. It's certainly an example of that. And so what Jesus was saying here is that those who crucified him, and in this case, the specific Roman soldiers he was talking about, that they were ignorant of the sin they were committing. What we also know that he is not saying that because they were ignorant, therefore they were not responsible for their sin, or that by him saying that they were just automatically forgiven of that sin. Well, how do we know that to be true, what I just said? Well, because... When Peter preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we know that Peter convicted them of that sin of crucifying Jesus. And they were convicted or pricked in the heart, some translations say, and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says in verse 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And so anyone who had sinned, whether we're Romans, Jews, or whomever, are responsible for following God's plan to have those sins forgiven. The other thing that we know, Peter really gives the same command as far as repenting of their sins to a group that ran together to Peter, including some Jews, after he had healed a lame man. So Peter heals a lame man. People find out about it. They're amazed. They all run together and you kind of have a mix of Jews and Gentiles, if you will. And so over in Acts chapter 3, Jeff, would you be willing to read uh, verses 13 through 19 for us there?
1: Sure. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. He was determined to let him go. You denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord.
0: So verse 17, where he says, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance as did also your rulers. So there's no doubt on the Gentile side, the rulers of the people and and certainly the Roman soldiers and so forth, many of them were ignorant of who Jesus was, the truth, the old law, because they didn't follow it. And unless they were taught it, most of them would not have known. And that's not to say they didn't have the opportunity, but I'm just saying that they were ignorant in that regard. You also have, even with the Jews, when you think about the day that Jesus stood before the crowd and Pilate offered to release Barabbas to them, and the leaders of the Jewish people stirred them up to say, no, give us Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. I think it's safe to assume, Jeff, that some of those did so in ignorance, right? They just kind of followed the crowd like mob rule. And so you might say, well, they did it in ignorance as well. So we don't have to necessarily go into every reason why he might say that they were ignorant. I think the key point here is verse 19. He says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So certainly, you know, even though they did it in ignorance, they still were accountable. And what's the lesson for us today? The same thing. Sometimes people get divorced and remarried when they don't have a right to, and therefore they cannot remain in a marriage and no longer be married. Well, that can be a consequence of their ignorance and not knowing the truth. But that doesn't mean that they can violate God's law because they were ignorant. So anyhow, just a few thoughts on that, Jeff. I'll turn it over to you.
1: Yeah, it's interesting with you know some of the questions we get. They're sort of like the initial or primary or central answer. Then you can easily tie in other things to it, You know, like you've done with uh, this one here. I find it interesting that, you know, while Jesus was on the earth, that he as deity had the power to forgive sins, which he did in some cases. In this particular case, he chose to turn it over to the Father, number one. The other thing that I thought was interesting, you know, the point that you made about how we might respond, you know, certainly indicates Jesus's love for humanity and wanting them forgiven. As you said, if we were in some kind of a similar situation, you know, that would not be our first thought. In fact, I'm reminded of uh, something Jesus said, I think, on the night he was betrayed, if I remember correctly. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? That's Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. You know, as he was suffering there on the cross, you know, as the, uh, I think as John 1 says, as the creator of the universe, he certainly had the miraculous technical ability to just, you know, wipe out everyone there, wipe out the entire planet, the solar system, the galaxy, whatever. Said, you know, I've had enough of this. I'm out of here, right? But restrained himself and, as you said, even showed the the willingness to forgive others, which in some ways, you know, we need to be willing to forgive others as well when they, as you said, meet God's requirements for being forgiven, uh, you know, to include repentance. Uh, Brian, that's all I had. Anything else before we go to the next question?
0: Uh, Nope. On to Margie. And Margie asked, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. And I always thought that meant what it said, but my teacher at church said that Jesus also had to suffer in hell for our sins when he was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Am I wrong? Margie asked. And again, here's another one of those
1: things that you you get to dig into a little bit. I think on a very simple level, surface level, no, Margie's not wrong. In fact, I think her teacher basically is misled. First of all, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, does record Jesus as saying the gates of hell would not prevail against him in establishing his church. And of course, that's from the King James Version. Continuing on after his death and resurrection, as you said, Acts chapter two, Peter's talking to an assembly of the Jews, day of Pentecost. Uh, Peter quotes Psalms 16 verses 8 through 11, and goes on in Acts 2:31 to say, uh, "He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption." Again, King James' Version. Now, what really confuses people? especially those that are familiar with the King James rendering, is that at the same time, Jesus describes hell in various passages as a place of torment for sinners uh, in the afterlife, uh, after the Day of Judgment. Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 uh, as one example, along with Mark chapter 9 verses 42 through 48. And so some people kind of become concerned or confused by the thought of the sinless Son of God being consigned to a place of torment. Now, this is where we got to dig a little bit deeper into various translations and a little bit deeper into the underlying Greek that was used as the original language of the New Testament. For starters, we need to recognize that there are two very different Greek words with very different meanings that the King James translators sort of mushed together into the same English word, hell. In fact, what I might mention as a side comment, if you go back to the verses that i referenced a few moments ago, uh, and our listeners happen to use some translation other than King James, they will probably find a different word than hell in their translation. That's because in some of these verses, the underlying Greek word is Hades which, if you look that word up in a a good uh, Greek dictionary, is defined as the unseen realm or region of departed spirits. It's basically a place where the spirits of the dead go. Uh, And a very common uh, word among the uh, Greek-speaking audience. That's one of the two words. The other of the two words is Gehenna or Genna, which is a place of torment after the final judgment. So if you understand there's two different Greek words with two different meanings and you go back into the various verses that uh, we were referencing earlier you'll find that the Greek word Hades is used in Matthew 16:18, Acts 227, Acts 231. So basically Jesus spirit and actually Jesus spirit along with the spirit of one of the thieves that was crucified with him went to Hades. In fact, Brian, as you said a few moments ago, actually went to a region in Hades called Paradise, chapter 23, verse 43, which seems to be the same place as Abraham's bosom in Luke chapter 16, verses 22 through 23. So bottom line is, if you wrap all that up, you know, when Jesus and one of the you know thieves on the cross died, they went to Hades, not to hell, you know, not to the place of torment or the lake of fire but to Hades, the realm of the unseen and departed spirits, where Lazarus was, where Abraham was, and at least in another section where the rich man was. So they went to basically to paradise, the paradise part of Hades. That's where the spirit of Jesus was while his body was in the tomb. So basically going back to Margie. Yeah, him saying it was finished. Yeah, his work was pretty much done when he died. Did not go to eternal torments and had to suffer in hell.
0: So how's that, Brian? that's it. I appreciate you covering that in detail. And in fact, you really kind of hit on yet another Bible study tip. And that is sometimes whether we look at the original underlying Greek or we simply look at other translations, highly encourage everyone, if you have the ability, you have a Bible program, or you use one of the free resources through our website to look at various translations, it can be very helpful to compare translations to see what word they use and then you know if you go in and you see you know one translation uses hell and everybody every other one uses hades or something else that should say hmm i wonder why that is and it'll cause you to often out of curiosity if nothing else to dig a little bit deeper and then understand like you said jeff why the king james chose hell instead of hades and therefore cause confusion
1: well i I think you made two good points there i'll i'll sort of footstop here for a moment And that is, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a Greek scholar. You don't necessarily have to have a lot of money to buy a lot of books. I mean, if you have internet access, which hopefully most of our listeners do, especially if they're listening to our podcast, there is a rich collection of aids out there on the internet uh, to include, as you mentioned, something as simple as different translations. And, you know, you can use these aids. You can look up different translations of a given verse. And you can kind of get a sense whether or not the translations are pretty much all saying the same thing, or there's a couple that are like saying something really weird, or they're all over the place, which suggests there's, you know, something going on with perhaps, you know, scribal errors or, you know, some manuscript, you know, questions, et cetera. So very easy to get to, very free in a lot of cases that you can use as a study aid to further dig into these kinds of passages.
0: All right, Jeff. So I guess you have the
1: next question. Well, I do, but it, it's somewhat of a uh, overlap to what we just got through talking about. Leslie writes in, where was Jesus between Friday and Sunday of his death? There you go, Brian. You
0: know, as Jeff touched on just in his last answer, we know that he was in paradise, which is in Hades. And so Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, Jesus himself said to that thief on the cross, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus tells us where he's going to be. And just to elaborate a little bit more about Hades, we won't take the time to read it, but there is a parable of the rich man and Lazarus over in Luke chapter 16. And if you have a pencil or you want to make a note of it, you're not familiar with it, write down Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And what you'll notice in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus is that they both, after they died, went to Hades. And so, for instance, we'll look at just a couple verses in Luke 16. In Luke 16, 23, this rich man who had lived an evil life was sent to a place called Torments in Hades. And it says, chapter 16, verse 23 of Luke, And being in Torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So that tells us there's a place in Hades called Torments. In verse 24, Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So that gives us a little bit more information, right? He's suffering. He's in this flame. He would love just a drop of water, right? So parched, thirsty, suffering, all those kinds of things. So much like the name, he's in torment. The other thing that we learn about Hades is also, as Jeff mentioned, you know Abraham's bosom. That's where Lazarus was. So that tells us, of course, that's the other part of it. And you cannot pass from one to the other is the final kind of big thing that we learn there. So over in Luke chapter 16, again, verse 26, Abraham said, it's not possible for Lazarus to give you water. And I'll just read it here. He says, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So a few basic lessons we can learn from that. One is that after we die, our destiny's fixed. There is no second chances. There's no repenting. There's no people praying for us or being baptized for us on our behalf as the Mormons teach and so forth. Our destinies fixed—that becomes pretty apparent, and there can be no changes. Now, Jesus was only in Hades until his resurrection, as was promised. So, if you look in Acts chapter two and verse twenty-seven, "For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption." So he left Hades and he returned to his body on earth, and we know that because after he arose, he presented himself first to his disciples in the upper room and and so forth. And then the final lesson I guess we could learn, Jeff, is that Jesus has power over death. In fact, this is referenced over in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, where it says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus was able to accomplish that. He was able to demonstrate power over death, and he was able to demonstrate that there will, in fact, be a resurrection. So, kind of interesting, Jeff, a little section of scripture like this, and it teaches us a whole lot about what will happen in the afterlife. Well, exactly.
1: And, you know, to be honest, I can understand how some of our listeners could be confused. Because even in Hades, there are several things that are like parallel to the eventual final judgment, heaven. Hell, et cetera. And I can kind of see how people could kind of get confused, especially depending on their translation. Like, I'm not certain which one you used, but it was obviously not the uh, King James. Yeah. New King James. Okay. So they went ahead and changed what they used to call hell to the uh, more accurate transliteration as in that of Hades. Okie dokie, Brian. I think that takes us to the last question.
0: Yep. The last question here, Jeff, is from Ethan. And he asks, if God is all powerful, why did he have to send his son to die for us? Could he have done it a different way? Or is he proving Jesus came as a man with all temptation and still beat the odds? And, you know, Brian, I think of all the questions
1: we've kind of focused on today. In some ways, I think this is probably the deepest one. uh, And in some ways, the most revealing Certainly the most consequential in terms of you know Jesus' role on the cross, et cetera. It's also one of the more challenging ones because it's one of those why <laughs> questions. Mm-hmm. And we get a lot of those to the website. I mean, we get a lot. Uh, you know, why did God do this? Why did Jesus do that? Why didn't God, you know, et cetera? so one of the first things we want to you know caution our listeners is that when you start getting into why questions we need to be careful especially when we as what i might call limited sinful humans try to put ourselves into god's shoes or into god's place and figure out why he did certain things now admittedly sometimes the rationale is revealed sometimes it's not deuteronomy 29 29 talks about secret things versus revealed things The other verse I might mention, which we mentioned quite a bit on the podcast, is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. Brian, you want to go ahead and read that real quickly?
0: Yes, here it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, We basically
1: have to be careful when we start thinking about God in human terms. And well, if I was God, I would whatever. It's like, nah, better stop. As and I'm not certain all our listeners will understand the reference, but we had a, a former preacher that warned about the dangers of quote-unquote whittling on God's end of the stick, trying to figure out or put ourselves in the place of God. So with that as kind of a disclaimer, let's kind of get into the question. First of all, I think we need to recognize that God, deity, the Father, Absolutely holy, absolutely sinless, totally pure. I mean, however you want to phrase that. First John one five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. In contrast, Isaiah fifty nine verse two. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, that he will not hear. So, God being absolutely holy. Humanity being sinful. Okay, so we've got a a major breach of relationship there. Yet, yet, at the same time, we recognize, thankfully, that God loves humanity. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 16, famous passage. So here's kind of the challenge for God, so to speak. He has to be sinless, has to be holy, has to be a God of justice, meeting out due punishment. And yet, at the same time, he wants to show love, he wants to show mercy, he can't ignore sin. If he ignored sin, then he wouldn't be sinless, he wouldn't be holy, he wouldn't even be a God of justice if he ignored sin. So, that kind of brings us back around to something we said at the top of the podcast, and that is this death, or sacrificial death, or atoning sacrifice... Jesus on the cross for our sins, uh, as we said, was arguably, is arguably the most important aspect of Christianity. It certainly is a unique claim of Christianity that the Father, in some ways, viewed his son's death, sinless son's death, as sufficient price to pay, so to speak, an atoning sacrifice for all the sins of all of mankind across all of time. Various verses that kind of speak to this completeness of his sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice. You can find in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. And finally, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 through 12. And of course, on, on that same thought... Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Brian, I think I might have you read that and notice how this death of Jesus allows God to be both holy, just, and merciful, save sinful humanity. And, of course, that includes you and I and all of our listeners.
0: Yes, so Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, it says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So again, a a very good passage that talks about the the
1: supreme value uh, of what uh, Jesus did on the cross. So coming all the way back around to our original question, you know, if God is all-powerful, why did he have to send his son to die for us? So it's not a question of power. It's a question of being holy and just and merciful and and coming up with a mechanism where, through God's grace, that he could make some provision for all of humanity to potentially have the forgiveness of sins. Could God have done it a different way? You know, that's kind of speculative. Bottom line is, he chose a way, probably the way to do it, that in many ways also shows his love for humanity, as well as that of his son, that Jesus was willing to, in some ways, give up the, Privileges and the glory of being deity with God in heaven and all that that involves come to this world dwell within a human body suffer the things that humans typically suffer and Yet at the same time uh, go above and beyond so to speak and and submit in humble obedience to the death on the cross So did God do it to prove Jesus still beat the odds? Eh, That doesn't quite ring true either. I think Bottom line is, is for our salvation out of an overflowing of grace and love for us. Uh, and again, Brian, that's another one of those. Sometimes we get so mired in the details that we uh, overlook the big picture.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate you bringing up that we just have to be careful not to question God or wonder, or you know, no doubt if He's the creator of the universe, He gets to set the rules, so to speak. Absolutely. And one thing that Hebrews teaches us is that a human perfect. Sinless sacrifice was required, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So the sacrifices under the old law simply covered sins year by year, and then there was a reminder of those sins. But to take away the sins permanently would require, once again, someone who was sinless. Well, no one was sinless. We know that from Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that tells us, you know, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus kept the law perfectly. And we're told in 1 Peter 1, 19, he was a lamb without blemish and spot. So as a result, he was the perfect sacrifice for sins. And to your point, Jeff, I just would encourage everybody to see the bigger point here, right? And that is that because he was selfless, he loved us, he was willing to be beaten and scourged and crucified so that we might have the ability to be reconciled to God and to have the chance of eternal life. So that's the key point, I guess, with his death on the cross.
1: Well, and I think there's a very small point that's probably worth mentioning. And that is, we could merit salvation if we could live sinlessly. But as we know from like Romans chapter 3, that does not occur. We sometimes say there's only one person who lives sinlessly, and they killed him. But it also drives home the point that once we have sinned, once we're tainted, so to speak, with sin, there's no amount of good deeds that we can do that would tip the scales, so to speak, you know, in our favor from any sort of, you know, meritorious perspective. Uh, certainly at the same time, we do not believe the scriptures advocate faith only, because coming out of faith, you need to have obedience. And, you know, some of that obedience is repenting of your sins and changing your life and being immersed in water, as as we have mentioned numerous times uh, on the podcast, for the remission of sins, living as we should for Christ when we fall short, which we always do from time to time, repenting. So it's an active faith. It's an obedient faith. So just, you know, throw that in there for a good measure.
0: Yeah, good thoughts. So as promised, we will also give you some additional topics on our website, biblequestions.org, that you can look at for some additional study material related to this subject. If you go to the alphabetical index, which is on our homepage or under the topics menu, choose C for Cross of Christ, F for Forgiveness, H for Hades, J for Jesus, R for Resurrection, S for Salvation. And we also had referenced a couple of times in the podcast, Jeff, uh, some principles on you know, how to properly study the Bible. We recorded a, a couple of podcasts about that. If you go back to episodes 101 and 102, listen to those. We really kind of go through in detail, according to what we learn in the Bible, what's the proper way to study and understand those principles. And so I uh, encourage you to listen to those as well. And as always, apply whatever you learn to your life.
1: Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions Podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.